By the way, are we in a State Farm commercial right now? Cliff Paul? <laughs> All right. Is anyone clamoring for Cliff Paul? No. What's up, nerds? It's basketball. Welcome to Horse, a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. My name is Mike Schubert, and I am joined by my trusted co-host, the Rudy Gobert taking a million years to put his contact back in to Chris Paul trying to high-five Donovan Mitchell after missing a clutch free throw. It's Adam Amawala. Adam, how's it going? <laughs> it's going well. Just next-level psychological warfare by Chris Paul right there. Last night's game, we're recording this on April 8th, last night's game between the Jazz and the Suns was so salty and so petty. I loved it. So yes, there was a late-game free throw that Donovan Mitchell missed that was very important, and classic NBA players try to high-five all their teammates. Chris Paul tried to high-five him as well to say, good job, thank you for doing that. Donovan Mitchell got very upset. And then later in the game, Chris Paul had to make two very important free throws. So Rudy Gobert tried to ice the kicker like you do in football, where you take a really long time before the free throw could happen. And he took a million years to replace his contact. Uh, It didn't work, which was funny, but I appreciate the pettiness on both sides. I mean, I guess if you're trying to distract someone when they're shooting a free throw, you could do the like fake coughing thing, but Mm -hmm. Rudy Gobert doesn't have a good history with that. (laughs) With that, we... We will move on before we talk about more basketball-y stuff. We're going to get centered in the Teal Memorial Locker Room. Teal was at the live show doing very well. Hooray, Teal. Not only is Teal doing great, Teal is rocking a horse jersey. Mm-hmm. Good things happening for Teal. Sorry that the jersey's not Teal. We do apologize for that. They didn't offer Teal as a color, and, and maybe later down the road we can get some Teal-colored merch. But at our disposal, Teal was not one of the options, unfortunately. Ah, well. Next time. Next time. Next time, indeed. So, you know who else good things are happening to? Uh, I think it might be our new patrons. It is our new patrons. So, shout out to Paul Pierce pooped his pants. Very fantastic. Also, Paul Pierce shit the bed, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) And also, shout out to our newest producer-level patron, Joe McMahon, who will be known going forward as long-suffering Timberwolves fan. Here's hoping they turn it around. Carl Anthony Towns is playing out of his mind. D'Angelo Russell is back. Anthony Edwards looks good. I'm wishing the Timberwolves all the best. Same here. I have Anthony Edwards on my fantasy team. You have Kat on yours. All the best to the T-Wolves. And Minnesota's a great Mm -hmm. place. Very friendly people. I would love to go. I've always wanted to visit. I'd be very down. People are so nice that if you live in New York like us, you don't trust them. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like friendly to a point where you're like, what do you want from me? Nope, you're just nice? Okay. Something is afoot here. (laughs) You want something from me, clearly. And of course, shout out to our existing producer level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shoobidoobidoo, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Curry for three, Bang! He sells seashells, LeBron James, Matt Barger, NBA legend Robert Sacri, No Jazz, No Pizza, Eileen Gazesh, Avatar Kiyoshi, Don't Go Chasing Taco Falls, Anna Borgeli, Mitch Chrysler, Bang, Bang, Brown Men Can Jump, Jimmy Butler for two, and Long Suffering Timberwolves fan. We did have a name change to where Jimmy Butler for two is now in the mix, so we do score at least eight points, I believe, in our intro here. <laughs> yeah, at this point, we're up to like a solid bench player level of points. <laughs> so hopefully we can get our patron list up to like a 20 points reference in our patron names. Mm -hmm. It'll be funny if what basically just ends up happening is the patron list becomes just an entire game commentary. It's just the reenactment of a game. (laughs) 
You know who else appreciates a good commentary? I have a feeling it might be our sponsors. It is our sponsors. We have two sponsors this episode, the first of which is Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. Whether you want to explore a new hobby or you want to foster a hobby that you already have, you want to further develop a skill that you've dabbled in a bit, Skillshare is here for you. You can witness your own transformation as you turn small steps into giant leaps. Just like you're an astronaut. I don't know if they have astronaut-related courses, but they do have a lot of great courses. I've taken one on productivity that I really enjoyed because I am a very scatterbrained boy, and they have a new class called Productivity for Creatives, Build a System that Brings Out Your Best. It is taught by Thomas Frank, and that sounds like something I very much need as someone who might be on the horizon of making four podcasts at the same time. Hooray! <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what, a, what a life you've created for yourself. But the good news is, if you take a class about productivity, by the time you finished it, you've already been more productive. It's incredible. What's not to love? I've enjoyed my Skillshare courses. I think that you will enjoy them too. It's also incredibly affordable, especially if you compare it to in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. So you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com horse, and you'll get a free trial of a premium membership. So again, explore that creativity at Skillshare.com horse, and you'll get a free trial of a premium membership. And thanks, Skillshare, for sponsoring the show. Yeah, thank you. Also, this episode is brought to you by Blaseball. Blaseball is a wildly ridiculous online baseball community simulation game, whatever you want to call it. You go to blazeball.com, you pick a favorite team to support. I support the Breckenridge Jazz Hands. I think they're perfect. But maybe you support Adam's semi-local team, the Chicago Firefighters, because firefighters are always from Chicago. So you pick a team to root for. They've got wild names. Each season lasts a week. You can earn coins that you can then use to make your team better. So you're an active fan. You're not just rooting for a team. You can help improve your team. It's very silly. It's very fun. The rules change all of the time. So if you just want some silly sports action, similar to how horses silly sports action, but maybe you want to do a little baseball stuff. You want to feel like you know some of the things that we talk about when Adam talks about baseball every single episode. You can head on over to blaseball.com. Little shade there, little shade. I, I understand. <laughs> you know, the thing about it is when you are a fan of a team that is three and three, like the Cubs, and has not scored more than five runs in a single game, sometimes it's time to start rooting for a fake team. Sometimes that's the move. Breckenridge Jazz Hands, they might need another fan. And uh, remember, kids, no jazz hands, no pizza hands. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So with that taken care of, we can leave the Teal Memorial locker room and get into full court press. Get it like the news? I do. So there's two bits of news. There's the Paul Pierce one, which is wild, which I think we'll cover second. But first, the WNBA for the 25th anniversary is going back to having actual custom jerseys for each team as yes. opposed to just the base level. We've talked about this in our live show recently. Thanks to everyone who came to the live show. The WNBA for a while had a situation where every team kind of had the same format of jersey. The only things that would be different were the color schemes and where the logo was placed and if there were sponsors or not. But for this season, every team will have three different jerseys and they have posted images of the first main jerseys, the home and away, for every team. And my goodness, they are fresh. And on April 14th, when I can buy a Sue Bird jersey, I am buying a Sue Bird Seattle Storm jersey because they're absolutely fresh. We'll put stuff about this on the website and on our Instagram account as well. But man, absolute fire stuff. I'm very excited. It's long overdue. That's awesome. And for anybody who missed the live show, and thank you again to those of you who attended, we did a three-on-three draft of best NBA jerseys throughout the history of time. And there was mm -hmm. a request for us to do that for WNBA jerseys, which we definitely can now, even right. if we're doing like a three-on-three draft of the New Jerseys. So mm -hmm. uh, not mm -hmm. to be confused with the New Jersey. We're talking about New Jerseys. <laughs> but um, for whenever the next live show may be, if it's in Zoom or in person sometime down the road, uh, I, I think I'm willing to commit to us doing that. 
Yeah, at the very least, we can do what we've done for jerseys in the past where we make an article and we rank them. That's something we used to do back for the Old City jerseys, so maybe we'll bring that back into the mix for these. All of this to say, the jerseys are fresh, we will be reviewing them in some shape or form, and for further clarification, each team has three jerseys. There is the Explorer, which is in your main team color. There is the Rebel, which is about female empowerment and storytelling, so that has a little more leeway, like the City jerseys, where some have different things, like the New York Liberty jerseys that are the Rebel jersey, for example, says equality instead of Liberty. And then there's also the heroin jersey, which is your home white jersey. And a lot of these have been retro from what I've seen. They've got retro logos from early days. So really fun stuff. If you spell out those three jerseys, it's H-E-R. So that's a fun little cool. nod to WNBA. It's it's some good stuff. I really appreciate that the WNBA is, is thriving. They're doing a lot for their 25th anniversary. And I saw recent studies that this year, ever since the pandemic, all men's sports have gone down in viewership, but all women's sports have gone up in viewership. The WNBA, the women's NCAA bracket, all of those viewership numbers were going up. So I'm very excited. And we can finally work towards Twitter trolls stopping saying gross, misogynistic things online. We inch closer every day. Almost makes you feel like maybe there should have been more than one weight in the weight room. Gosh, can you imagine? (laughs) What do you think accounts for that? What do you think the reason for that is? I honestly think it is just good marketing. You've finally got people talking about the leagues. I think the WNBA with their orange hoodie initiative has been huge. I wear my orange hoodie all the time. I get so many compliments on my WNBA orange hoodie from random people in New York City. I think they've been better on social media. I think NBA players have done a really good job about shouting out the WNBA. And I think all the activism really helps too. I really think the WNBA being loud and standing up against various injustices has been really huge. A lot of people knew that the Atlanta Dream played a huge role in the Georgia runoffs and everything. So I think there's just a lot of good press coming towards the WNBA. And once you watch it, you realize they're very good at basketball. Like it's it's purely, I think, a big marketing thing that once people actually watch the sport, they go, oh, this is very fun. I very much look forward to going to a game with you whenever we can do that. I've actually never been to a WNBA game, so I'm excited. I want to see uh, Ionescu. Yeah, they're very fun. The games are very, very fun. So speaking of very fun, Paul Pierce had a lot of fun, but now he's having a little less fun. Now that we've spoken about empowering <laughs> women, let's talk about Paul Pierce being an asshole. So oh, man. I don't know exactly what the context of this Instagram Live is because I didn't want to go too deep into this. But the basic summary from what I understood is that Paul Pierce went on Instagram Live and looked like he was playing poker and getting a massage and maybe also a haircut. But then there were scantily clad women twerking and people throwing dollar bills around. Seems similar to the private party situation that we talked about with James Harden, but it felt much more private because it wasn't in like a club. It looked like a bunch of friends rented out some sort of indoor space and then had a night of drinking and smoking and gambling. But everybody got COVID tests before, don't worry. Oh, of course, of course. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, Paul Pierce looked blazed out of his mind and he was on Instagram Live angling the camera so that you could see booties twerking all behind him. And he did not put this on a private feed or a friends only or whatever. And he got fired from ESPN. (laughs) I have to say a good rule of thumb if you are a famous person, probably any person, but definitely a famous person, is to just not ever use Instagram Live. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Why would you ever? The amount of bad things that people have done. It's just so ill-advised. It's, oh, yeah. 
gosh, even I've been doing some Instagram lives recently to talk about Modern Muckraker, the Kickstarter that I've got going on. And I'm always terrified that I'm just going to accidentally say something horrible and the stakes are far lower. And I have nothing horrible to say, but that fear still persists every time I do something live. Exactly. It's amazing to me, especially for someone like Paul Pierce, who has been a celebrity for a long time that people still make that mistake. Right. It's very surprising, especially because I'm sure the paychecks he gets from ESPN for being a commentator are pretty good. He's on the jump a whole lot. He is bad at it, so I'm not sad. I'm not going to miss him because he always has the coldest takes and he randomly picks fights with LeBron and Dwayne Wade and tries to act like he was a better player than he was. So I'm I'm not sad from a, oh, Paul, I'm going to miss Paul Pierce's expert analysis perspective. But yeah, he he had some cryptic tweets about things being okay. He said, even when I lose, I still win. So I guess he's either going to start a podcast or he got picked up by some other news network that doesn't care as much like a TMZ or something. You can now follow him at Barstool Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like those are the only two options. We will see what comes of it. Apparently he did get offers from a few porn sites to, you know, do the exact same thing he just did, but for them. Classic, classic. So we'll see what comes of it, but yeah. It certainly lent itself to some fantastic memes. Oh, yes. I don't know which NBA player tweeted, but there was an NBA player that tweeted just, lol, he forgot to put on friends only, which is just very, very good stuff. And like you said, Paul Pierce back in the day pooped his pants and Paul Pierce now has shit <laughs> the bed. Brought to you by our sponsor, Casper Ma- uh, Just kidding. We don't have, we are not, we're not sponsored <laughs> there by Casper. Is, there are a couple of podcasts that are sponsored by bidets. And I feel like <laughs> if we ever get sponsored by a bidet company or a toilet paper company or any bathroom product, we should brand it. We, I don't think we've done that actually happen about the Paul Pierce poop situation. So maybe we start reaching out to butt-related sponsors about it. <laughs> I just can't wait for there to be a tab in our Google spreadsheet called butt-related sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a great idea for that actually happen. That that will happen. I'm going to put that yes, out into that the will ether. Happen. We're going to put that into that existence. That will happen, yes. For sure, for sure. But before we can get into our next that actually happened, you have a three on three, so let's hear it. One, two, three. Three, two, one. Three on three. So, given that the Academy Awards are later this month, for today's three on three, I wanted to give out some acting awards myself. So I proudly <laughs> present the three best and three worst performances by an NBA player in a movie. I'm very excited about this because we've done NBA player acting stuff, but we've always had weird stipulations on it. Like we did Shaq ones and Rick Fox ones. So I'm glad that you're just giving us the baseline NBA player in a movie. I think this is a good thing, especially from your perspective, someone who has been an actor in commercials and other stuff. So that's cool. You've got the, you're taking an acting intensive right now. Look at you. You've got the expertise. (laughs) Yes. I am currently taking an acting intensive that is uh, operating on LA time. So, um, oh, that's why the timing is exactly. so weird. That makes so much more sense. Exactly. So the initial class was supposed to be from 6 p.m. to 10.30 p.m., which for me is 9 to 1.30 in the morning. But as usually goes with acting classes, they run long. And so I wrapped up my acting class around uh, 3.10 in the morning, this morning, mm-hmm. before <laughs> recording this. So I am acting my way through being awake. <laughs> that's that's the acting that I'm doing right now. Uh, also, I liked uh, your use of the word baseline in a segment about uh 
basketball players acting. I don't think it was intentional, but I'm here for it. Yes, subconscious, but hey, basketball is always on the brain, so it comes out. Hell yeah. Now, again, this is just NBA players in films. Now, what that means is that we're not talking about how funny Blake Griffin was on that episode of Broad City, nor are we discussing any funny performances by NBA players in commercials, etc. But a huge shout out to Dikembe Mutombo for his work in that Geico commercial. <laughs> Top 10 all-time commercial. Oh, unbelievable Incredible. Commercial. Uh, and also to Patrick Ewing for appearing as Patrick Chewing in an absolutely oh. incredible Snickers ad. Uh, we will definitely God. put links to both of those in the episode description because they are not to be missed. But this mm -hmm. is strictly about feature films. So with that in mind, let's start with the worst performances at number three. And this pains me to say it. Michael Jordan in Space Jam. Ooh, okay. Now, okay. if you have listened to this podcast, you already know how difficult that was for me to admit. But Michael Jordan is not a good actor. Michael Jordan is definitely not the Michael Jordan of acting, <laughs> unless you're referring to his baseball career, in that it could have been worse, but it was objectively not good. MJ has always been extremely charming and charismatic and looks very good on camera. And I completely appreciate that acting with cartoons is not an easy feat. But MJ's acting was as wooden as the courts he played on. <laughs> I would like to reference one particular line reading that always comes to mind when I think about Space Jam. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and in this particular scene, Jordan has had a tough day playing baseball. He walks into his home, which, by the way, is way too small to believably be his home. Mm -hmm. That always, mm -hmm. I don't understand it. Like, I get that they wanted him to seem relatable, but in what world does Michael Jordan live in a two-bedroom house in a cul-de-sac? It just, it, it takes me out of the film. Am I wrong? No, no, you're, you're exactly it's such right. A small because house. he's mid-career Michael Jordan. If you look at the timeline when he left to play baseball. He was peak of his powers, Michael Jordan. That might be when he made $30 million in a season, so <laughs> he could probably afford more than a $250,000 home. I would agree. So uh, in this scene, Jordan's had a tough day at the office, aka Baseball Diamond, and walks into his house and says, what's for dinner? And the, I don't know if it's like a chef or whoever it is, but she says, chicken and collard greens. And Jordan says, good. I'm going to need a good meal tonight. And that was the best reading of that line that they got for that scene. Uh, we've talked about this at some point. I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, but it brings me joy every single time. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's really, really bad. Um, at number two, the second worst performance goes to Carl Malone in Soul Plane. Carl Malone is in Soul Plane? Carl <laughs> Malone is in Soul Plane. Also, blanket, fuck Carl Malone. Gotta always say that at the top. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's where I was going with this. I'll be honest, I just wanted to put Carl Malone on a list of things that are bad. And if I were yep. doing a ranking of worst humans to have played in the NBA, slash people who were rude to my dad at a hotel one time, Carl Malone would be number one. I've never told you this story. No, what happened? All right, let's get into it. Um, Come on, baby. <laughs> my dad, I believe my dad was in Sacramento on business, and the Jazz were playing the Kings and the Jazz were staying at the hotel that my dad was at. And this was at like the peak of Jazz fame. This was like late 90s teams against the Bulls Jazz. And obviously I was a huge basketball fan at the time and my dad knew who all these guys were. And so he like saw them in the lobby at one point and recognized John Stockton and Carl Malone and went up to them and basically was like, I'm so sorry to bother you. My son is a huge basketball fan would you mind signing a piece of paper for him? And John Stockton, uh, according to my dad, was like the nicest human in the world and was like, of course, like, absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure. Like, what's his name? I'll make it out to him. So I don't know where it is, but I have a piece of paper from John Stockton that says like, yes. to Adam, and then it's signed John Stockton. And then my dad asked Carl Malone for an autograph. And I think Malone at first, like, wouldn't even acknowledge that someone was talking to him. And then when my mm. dad asked him again, he was just like, no, 
Now, bear in mind, this is not like a situation where there's 100 people asking for autographs. It's literally my dad in the lobby of a hotel next to a basketball team. Like there was no, like in the time that it took him to say no, he could have just scribbled something on a piece of paper. But it, probably considering that I was like 10 at the time, I was a little too old for Carl Malone. So maybe that was his trepidation. Um, <laughs> I was going to make a what's your age joke. <laughs> such a piece of shit. Um, <sighs> anyway, in this scene, it's a very brief scene. Carl Malone is in a scene with Tom Arnold, who is also among the most annoying people on the planet. Like he, Tom Arnold is up there with like Andy Dick for me in terms of most annoying people who pop up in movies all the time. But uh, basically they were trying to make a not so subtle nod to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's cameos in the airplane films. Uh, spoiler alert, become a patron of this podcast and check out the extended five on five for this episode to hear more about that performance. But uh, the difference here is that Carl Malone fucking sucks. Mm, not a good mm, performance. Mm, mm, mm. Not a good person, not a good performer. He doesn't even have that much to do. It's like four lines and he's bad at them. Good. Uh, finally, the number one worst performance goes to grumpy boy extraordinaire Shaquille O'Neal in Kazam. Yeah. Yeah. A film that has a gaudy 5% fresh <laughs> certification on Rotten Tomatoes. Yikes, yikes. And that 5% was probably, you know, O'Keel Chenille <laughs> reviewing the film. <laughs> and if you are somehow not familiar with Kazam, allow me to read you the actual plot description from its wiki page. Kazam is a 1996 American musical fantasy comedy film starring Shaquille O'Neal as the title character, a 5,000-year-old genie, who appears from a magic boombox to grant a 12-year-old boy three wishes. Now, I believe this was actually based on a true story. I can't be sure. Uh, oh, right, yes. It but is. more specifically, and I quote, a wrecking ball destroys an abandoned building, the impact knocking over a magic lamp inside and causing it to land on a boombox. The genie inside decides to make residence inside the boombox from there on. Now, let's be fair. This is a horrific idea for a film. It, it, but... <laughs> What, you, are you going to say it's a good idea for a film? Here, here's what I'm going to say. If someone described that exact plot for a movie coming out this year, I would think it's the greatest idea for a film ever. But it's just tainted because Kazam is such a bad movie. And honestly, <laughs> I think it's because the kid is annoying as shit. I mean, Shaq is not great, but that child actor is so bad and so unlikable. But if you told me and my memory was erased and someone said, hey, Mike, they're coming out with a movie next year where Shaq is a genie that came out of a boombox, I would be so fucking hype. <laughs> and all of our younger listeners would be like, what is a boombox? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like a Bluetooth speaker? Like a like a Beats pill? How could he fit in there? Did anyone ever have Beats pills or were they just in music videos? I've never seen one in real life, ever. Maybe I don't have rich enough friends, but I've never seen a Beats pill in my life. I think you're right. Yeah, I don't think they exist in the wild. <laughs> so first of all, agreed. That kid is incredibly annoying. You don't root for the main character, which is a fundamental flaw of a movie in which you're supposed to root for a character. And again, like... This is not a great idea for a film. Whatever, I, I disagree with you. This is a bad idea for a film. But Shaq does nothing to elevate the already terrible material. Now, I think we can all agree that Shaq does have a great personality and has actually shown some acting chops before. Blue Chips is a very good film, but there is truly nothing redeeming about this film. In his defense, though, Shaq has been very honest about why he did the movie, and you have to give him credit for his bluntness. In a 2012 interview with GQ magazine, Shaq said... I was a medium-level juvenile delinquent from Newark who always dreamed about doing a movie. Someone said, hey, here's $7 million. Come in and do this genie movie. What am I going to say? No? So I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And honestly, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah. If, if someone offered me $7 million to do just about anything that wasn't going to like harm people... I would probably do it. That's why I appreciate the Hulu has live sports ads where they're very much in the joke where we paid 
various athletes lots of money to promote it, and all of the commercials are just about them getting paid lots of money. I like it. Please have more self-aware stuff. It's totally good. be honest. Yeah. All right. Now that we've gotten the bad performances out of the way, let's get to the good ones. Mm -hmm. uh, at number three on my best performances by an NBA player in a movie, Rick Fox in He Got Game. Yeah. It's not yeah. a huge role, uh, but... Fox plays a cocky college star, Chick Deegan, which unbelievable character name, by the way, mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. shows Jesus Shuttlesworth, a.k.a. Ray Allen, around a college campus and introduces him to some of the, shall we say, perks of that experience. Think Paul Pierce, if you're wondering what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, and he absolutely kills it. Like, you completely believe him the entire time. He is fully in command of the scene. And there's a really fun story that goes along with it from an article uh, in Slam magazine that says, uh, one day during the casting for He Got Game, Ray Allen, Travis best uh, who's another nba player who is on the pacers and is in that film and rick fox auditioned for director spike lee allen and best were battling it out for the lead role in the film jesus shuttlesworth fox meanwhile read for chick deegan a cocky college star the scene went really well suddenly the room filled with applause spike's not clapping and the casting director isn't clapping fox says the clapping is coming from the closet denzel washington then sticks his head out of the closet like that was really good i'll never forget thinking that's denzel washington shit <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Like, how good would you feel if Denzel Washington liked your acting? Especially if you're not someone who's like a lifetime actor, you're an NBA player. Normalize Denzel Washington coming out of a closet to tell you that you're doing a good job. More <laughs> of that, please. We need more of that in the world. <laughs> All right, number two on my best performances list goes to Kevin Garnett playing himself in Uncut Gems. Ooh. Now, if you have never seen Uncut Gems and would like to have an extended panic attack for two hours, I highly recommend That's it. why I have not seen Dude, Uncut Gems. <laughs> oh my God. It's, yeah. It's actually a pretty terrific movie and Adam Sandler does some of his finest work of his career, honestly, in it. But man alive, it is stressful. It's the kind of movie where you just want to like reach through the screen and shake the lead character until he comes to his senses and you just can't do it and it's super frustrating. But in any case, without giving too much away, Adam Sandler plays a jeweler who is dangerously addicted to sports gambling. The film is set in 2012, and the climax of the film occurs using actual footage from a 2012 NBA playoff game involving the Celtics and 76ers. Early in the film, Kevin Garnett comes into the store and becomes obsessed with this rare gem that Adam Sandler's character has procured and asks to borrow it because he feels like it like gives him some sort of power. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but Garnett has multiple scenes one-on-one -on -one with Sandler, including several where he has to get really agitated with him, and he nails it. Like, picture the intensity that KG had on the basketball court, and then imagine him applying that same intensity on screen, and that's the end result. Amazing. Like, even though he's playing himself, it's a pretty damn impressive piece of acting. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't know that I'll ever see this movie as someone that can't even handle when I bet $1 on a game. I couldn't imagine being stressed out watching someone else gamble their lives away. It would be terrifying. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lot, but the performances are very good. <laughs> if you ever want to take some CBD and, and sit down for a nice movie night, <laughs> that might be the only way to uh, to watch it. Finally, uh, number one on this list, and I cannot wait to hear how angry this makes my buddy slash the commissioner of our fantasy basketball league, James, who is the most diabolical LeBron hater this side of the Mississippi. The number one performance goes to LeBron James in Trainwreck. We've talked about it before, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but here's the deal. I am a professional funny person, and while I have never made a living from acting, specifically, I have made a living from stand-up comedy, and comedy is fucking hard. Like, I have done both comedic and dramatic acting, and I honestly think comedic acting is tougher. And most of the time when an NBA player plays themselves in a film or TV show, all that is being asked of them is to say, like, one or two lines that pertain to them being a basketball player. Like, that's the extent of it. In Trainwreck, LeBron legitimately plays the supporting best friend role 
which is not an easy role to play under any circumstances. And part of what makes it so funny is how understated the performance is, which is a technique in comedy called reversal. So basically the idea is, how would the average person expect LeBron to act in his personal life, and who would we expect his best friends to be? Okay, great, now that you have that in your head, Let's make LeBron the exact opposite of that and make his best friend be Bill Hader. And it's a simple but incredibly effective technique, and LeBron pulls it off flawlessly. Also, I'm not exactly sure how many days LeBron filmed on this movie, but needless to say, LeBron has a lot going on, and I would guess that they had to get all of these scenes done in a fairly small window of time, which makes the yeah. performance all the more impressive. Yeah. So, in conclusion, I have named LeBron the GOAT of NBA film acting, but Michael Jordan remains the GOAT of actually playing in the NBA. Also, I have every expectation that now that I have called Michael Jordan a bad actor, he's going to take it very personally and win an Oscar just to spite me. Yeah, he'll either do that or he'll make a rival podcast that is our exact same format and then just <laughs> somehow it, it, he makes it better. <laughs> just crushes us into oblivion. Mm -hmm. Welcome to my podcast. Pony. <laughs> <laughs> but before I pass it over to you for your That Actually Happened, I do want to give a, another shout out to James. Uh, though he is ruthless as a fantasy player, he was texting me last night because the Celtics were playing your beloved Knicks. He's a big Celtics fan and was mentioning that he and his wife, Christina, had listened to our uh, our episode where we talk about Stacey King and Clyde Frazier and that he was watching the New York feed and he sent me some. I don't know if you watched the game last night. I unfortunately did. The Knicks... Threw it away. Yeah. It was very disappointing. But some of Clyde's highlights uh, from last night included, uh, within the first two minutes of the game, saying how Jalen Brown was charismatic, acrobatic, and gymnastic, hooping and swooping. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Apparently in the fourth quarter, he, he said about Marcus Smart that he's always tenacious, loquacious, pugnacious. I mean, all, all correct. Those are all apt descriptions of Marcus Smart. And finally, uh, to describe Derek Rose <laughs> uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter as well, uh, Clyde said, Derek Rose with zest and finesse, feline quickness to the hoop. You don't want to get tentative, apprehensive. Amazing. Such Gosh, good stuff. What a man. Such what good stuff. What a man. Happy belated birthday to Clyde Frazier, who is just a national treasure. May he never change. May he never change. May he never retire. May he broadcast until the end of time. I think if I saw him in like a plain gray suit, my brain would explode. That would be wild. That would be the ultimate. You're, what have you done with Clyde Frazier <laughs> if he if he wears just a navy suit? You have to figure even if he like goes to a funeral, he's still wearing like a black velvet suit. Right. It would be black, but there would be something about it that's nice. You can tell it's actually cow print, but it is black and then black velvet or something. <laughs> little, little something. Or the inside liner is all the wild colors. Also, can you imagine the quality of a eulogy delivered by Walt Clyde Frazier? The rhyming? Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of fun to think One about. Or, or like a toast at a wedding. I feel like what the Knicks should do is they should make a Clyde Frazier series where before he inevitably retires, he just records hours upon hours of different things that he can say about players and such. And then a computer can just kind of auto plug it in <laughs> based on what happens, because I think that's better than any sort of replacement person that we could have. I completely agree. Okay, well, now I've got a that actually happened that is one that is a, a big story and somehow we've never done it in 72 episodes of Horse. So here I am. I will be covering the Tim Donaghy NBA 2007 referee betting scandal. Ooh, juicy. 
Oh, it's a big one. It's it's a doozy of a story, and I could tell this story for a million years, but I'm going to try to do my best in a, in a shortened setting. So the research for this came from three different areas, each falling on a different end of the do we believe Tim Donaghy spectrum? So there is Whistleblower, which is a podcast that came out in late 2020. That is the most pro-Donaghy approach to it. There is a book that came out in 2011 called Gaming the Game by Sean Patrick Griffin, which is the most anti-Donaghy. And then there's an ESPN article written by Scott Aiden that they republished in 2019 for an anniversary of the betting scandal, but most of the storytelling I've kind of compiled from these three different sources, I would say that if you want a pretty good recap and one that is more middle of the road, that would be the ESPN article. It's more even than the other two, where the guy who wrote the book just trashes Donaghy and the whistleblower guy is very pro-Donaghy. There's a lot of Donaghy quotes, and it's more about like the conspiracy of the NBA as opposed to just like damning Tim Donaghy. Right. Also, whistleblower is such a perfect name. <laughs> it really is. It's it's really quality stuff. The podcast is fine. It's 10 episodes. It's one of those documentaries where it's 10 episodes and it could have been four. Yeah. So I would recommend it as a background noise type thing. Uh, and because like three of the episodes are just not about the betting scandal at all. One time they do an entire episode about the 2002 Western Conference Kings game, which we've talked about on the pod, which, yeah, it's a good story, but it is not about the NBA betting scandal at all. It is just about the bigger NBA conspiracy. So let's talk about Tim Donaghy from the jump. So Tim Donaghy was a gambler and a referee. He would gamble on other sports and stuff, played golf, would gamble on the golf games he was playing. He would bet on other sports, stuff like that. He grew up in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which has a lot of NBA referees. A lot of NBA referees come from this area. Delco. Yep. As well as a lot of gamblers. So really kind of fits his hometown. Quick question. I don't know if you're going to cover this. Mm -hmm. Is there any rule against NBA referees gambling on other sports? They are not supposed to do it, but a lot of NBA referees still did. Huh. So it, it wasn't as big of a deal, obviously, versus betting on games in the NBA or games that you are refereeing, which Tim Donaghy did do. But yeah, they weren't supposed to. But the NBA refs in this time, in the late 90s, early 2000s, they had a couple of scandals go up. One of them was involving just what you're saying, betting on other sporting events. There was also one where the FBI had to get involved, where NBA referees would be given a travel stipend for flying to the different games. And what they would do is they would book first class tickets or economy plus tickets, and then they would downgrade the tickets, get that money back, and then not report it as income. Wow. And that was a whole big deal. So at this time, NBA referees were already in a little bit of hot water. And then this Tim Donaghy thing happened in, oh, Oh boy. So Tim Donaghy first started betting on NBA games because he had a friend by the name of Jack Kincannon who on the golf course approached him about betting on NBA games. And apparently this just started as Kincannon knowing that Donaghy was a ref and just kind of asking advice for, hey, what teams do you think I should bet on? This eventually turned into Tim and Jack betting on a lot of games. And then it turned into Tim betting on his own games, which of course is a big problem when you are refereeing a game that you have money on the line for. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. I mean, that's even worse than Pete Rose somehow, which, you know, I have to shoehorn right. a baseball reference into every basketball podcast. <laughs> but Pete Rose, his defense was like, oh, I only ever bet on my own team to win, which is somehow more defensible than being someone who's supposed to be an arbiter of the sport. Right. Messing with the points. 
Yes. And Tim Donaghy long claims that he never was influenced by the bets that he had on games, which is impossible. Yeah, it's complete ridiculous. bullshit. And he still argues that he never fixed a game, but he could influence a game. And that's a big thing that he likes to say is that he never made an incorrect call. It was just a question of, there's so many gray area calls, especially when you're calling a foul. So Tim Donaghy long states that he never made an incorrect call. He just chose when to be stricter or non-stricter. But if you look at every call he made on a call-to-call basis, he will defend that nothing violated the rules. He's full of shit. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So according to court documents, Donaghy and Kincannon placed their first bet on a game that Donaghy was refereeing in March of 2003. Now, you notice I called this the 2007 betting scandal. It took four years to catch him wow. because starting in 2006, things really got upgraded. So during these four years where he was betting with his friend Jack Cannon, Tim Donaghy had an 88% success rate. 88% of the bets that Tim told Jack to bet on would be correct. And that, when you're gambling, is ridiculous. Yeah, that's pretty good. Ridiculous. There was some study that I think professional gamblers, people who really, really study and really look at the lines and all this kind of stuff, they will get it right between 55 and 60% of the time, which is still good. If you're getting more than half right, you're going to be in the green. But 88% is unheard of. So, This got upgraded because of a man named Jimmy Batista. So Jimmy Batista had mob ties. He was also from Delco. He actually went to school with Tim Donahue growing up, but he had a gambling company. They made this offshore gambling company, and they were able to see the bets that Ken Cannon was making, and they kind of noticed the trend because they had this guy's user information. So they just started betting every time this guy bet on NBA games because they didn't know what was up, but they knew that Ken Cannon clearly had some sort of trick up his sleeve. So they would just bet $30,000, $50,000, $100,000 on any game that Jack Ken Cannon bet on in the NBA. Now, Batista eventually got light of the truth behind it, and this is where things get murky about there's this fateful meeting between Jimmy Batista, Tim Donaghy, and their mutual friend, Tommy Martino. So Martino was friends with both of the guys, but Tim and Jimmy weren't necessarily friends. So there is this big meeting that was facilitated in December of 2006, and that is when the betting scandal really became what we all know and what became truly infamous. Hmm. So the reason that the stories differ is that certain instances, it, it is framed as everyone was a willing party. There's people on record saying that Tim wanted to set this meeting up. There's also people on record saying that Jimmy Batista wanted to set this up. Tim Donaghy has said that Batista threatened him in this meeting. So he said that if Tim didn't go along with it, that he would either tell the NBA that he had been betting on his own games or he would hurt his family. Many people have refuted this. So that was just kind of like a lie that Tim Donaghy said to try to make him seem more innocent. But all this to say is the exact details are cloudy. But at some point, these three dudes got in a room and hatched this scheme. Jimmy Batista would pay Tim Donaghy $2,000 per game if the pick was correct. And he wouldn't have any sort of negative repercussion if he was wrong. Tim Donaghy just wouldn't get paid. So Tim Donaghy's already making pretty good money as a ref. And then if his bets hit, he gets another $2,000. And you ref about 55 games a year. So uh, if you can pull in an extra $100,000 plus, that's that's pretty good. And this would be every game that he refed, right? Yes. So Tim Donaghy would go on record to say that he didn't bet on every game. But a lot of other people said every single game that he 
reft starting from December of 2006, he had a wager on through Jimmy Batista. Wow. Now, since Batista had mob ties and was a professional gambler and had an offshore gambling company and all this other stuff, he made this way more complicated. Jack and Cannon would just bet in one place and that was it. But Batista would do things like buying and selling other bets. He would do things where he would head fake bets. So he would know which team Tim Donaghy was going to make win the bet. And then he would bet a bunch of money on the other team so that the price would go down. And then he would bet ridiculous sums of money on the right team. It was, he just made this thing enormous. And we're talking about millions of dollars getting moved per game. So it became huge, large scale situation under Batista. I'm sure they declared all of the income they were making. Yeah, yeah, of course. As someone that just has been doing their taxes recently, (laughs) I'm sure they have a whole spreadsheet and everything is fine. And yeah. (laughs) So Martino always would serve as the middleman between these two. And they had phone calls and there was a code that they would use. So if Tim Donaghy called Tommy and talked about his out-of-state cousin, Johnny, that meant that he was going to favor the visiting team. And if Donaghy talked about his cousin, Chuck, who lived in the state, that means the home team would be favored. Hmm. So they had a code. But here's something that the author of Gaming the Game points out is that the whole thing is that these codes only work if they know what game is being talked about. So the fact that they never in these phone calls talked about what game debunks any sort of claim that Tim Donaghy would make that he wasn't betting on his own games. It had to have been his own games. Otherwise, they would have had to clarify because there's sometimes five, six, seven NBA games going on in the same night. There's no way that you could have this code without it being explicitly about Tim Donaghy's games. Right. So here's how the betting would actually work. There's a thing in betting on sports called the spread. So in basketball, you will have two teams playing. Let's say the Knicks and the Bulls are playing, for example. And the better team in order to make the spread, can't just win the game. They have to win by a certain amount. So let's say the Knicks are playing the Bulls. The Knicks are the best team in basketball. The Bulls are the worst team in basketball. The the Knicks would have, say, a plus 10 spread. So if you are betting on the Knicks to win, they have to win by 10 points or more for you to get the money. So what Tim Donaghy would do is, with various calls, he would just make sure that the bet fell under the spread. Now, what Tim Donaghy says, and this is where it gets into bigger scandal stuff, is he says that he never really influenced the game, which is bullshit. But he says he would base his bets on what the NBA wanted out of games. And this has never been confirmed, but it does, in some sense, make sense. But all of that is completely thrown out when you realize that Tim Donaghy bet on a bunch of his own games and... You can't really use that as a legitimate defense. But what he would say is that the NBA had certain vested interest in particular teams winning, and that is what influenced his betting decisions because the NBA would favor a team like the Lakers to make the finals more so than someone like the Spurs or the Kings. And though that could be true, and that's something that people have long rumored, I you, you can't really have a lot of credibility when you bet on 40 of your own games in one season and uh, you make some calls that are very dubious. Well, maybe this has changed, but it doesn't sound like Donaghy has been very contrite ever. I mean, it, it, if his defense is like, well, the NBA wanted games to go a certain way and I never really influenced anything that wouldn't have happened anyway. And this guy Batista was going to like murder my family. Right. It sounds a lot like someone who's trying to explain away their misdeeds. What's really hard when you try to take the side of Tim Donaghy is that 
if you look into what he has said during the trials and after and all of this, he changes his story all of the time. So it's very hard to view him as a credible witness or a source when he's just constantly trying to paint himself in the best light. So even if there is truth behind the things he's saying about bigger picture NBA conspiracies, it is very hard to believe him because he right. constantly is rewriting his story to try to make himself look as good as possible. Yeah. So Donaghy would talk with Batista about whatever team he was going to favor. And then right before the game started, Donaghy would be informed of what the final spread needed to cover was. Because sometimes when a lot of bets come in, the numbers will move. So say the Knicks have that plus 10 spread, but a lot of people start betting on the Bulls. The gambling company will lower the spread, say, to eight. Because the gambling company does the best when just the most amount of bets come in. So if a lot of people are betting in one direction, they will adjust the numbers so that people might start betting in the other direction. So right before the game, he would learn what number the spread was, and then he would make the game fall in that number. Eventually, Donaghy's cut got up to $5,000 per game, but that was still chump change compared to what Batista was bringing in because hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars were moving each game. Ridiculous. Yeah. You have to wonder if at a certain point Donaghy got cocky and was like, hey, if you want me to keep influencing the games, like I'm going to need more money. We'll see. I mean, he should have asked for way more. Oh, way yeah. Way more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Donaghy would do things like calling particular fouls against certain players. He would try to get the best players into foul trouble. He would do things like call a legal defense early in the game so that people were tentative on fouling as much so that Donaghy had more control. He would do a lot of different things to put him in the driver's seat. And there were some extreme instances where there was one game where he called 11 straight fouls against Seattle when he was betting on the other team. There would be a lot of late second calls when the game was basically over, but he would do that if a team was a couple free throws away from making the spread work. So he did, uh, he did a whole lot. And even Tommy Martino in the whistleblower podcast in a hot mic situation, he didn't realize they were recording, said that one time Tim Donaghy admitted to him that even some close things like a player stepping on the out of bounds line, he would decide to call that whether or not it made sense for his betting situation. Wow. And that is when you really get into fixing and not just deciding of when to interpret the rules. Totally. And for anybody who's wondering what illegal defense is or was, uh, it is not something that exists anymore, but it used to be that in the NBA, you could not play zone defense. Mm -hmm. So you had to play man on man. And anytime a team was not doing that, they would get called for illegal defense. But that's something that is very discretionary. And if you want to call a game a certain way, you can absolutely make that call. And it's very hard to argue. Right. And if you call a legal defense, then you're going to get more man-to-man -man defense, which is going to create more situations where a foul could be called, which allows Tim Donaghy to decide whether yeah. or not he wants to call those. And it's interesting talking about a hot mic because my roommate works for the NHL. And I don't know if you heard about this, but oh, yeah. there was recently a scandal involving, uh, actually, weirdly, a, a referee named Tim who was caught on a hot mic saying that he wanted to intentionally penalize the Nashville Predators early in the game just to like get one against them because he had some sort of like animus towards that team. Yeah. And they picked it up on a hot mic and he was like fired immediately. But I think he said it was a makeup call, which is a big deal because makeup calls definitely do exist in sports. I was a baseball referee for a while and you definitely have that tendency to want to make a, a call that benefits a team if you made a mistake. I called a strike that probably really wasn't. Then I'm trying to say, okay, if there's one that's really close, maybe this time I'll go for a ball. Like, it's definitely a thing that officials do. I don't even think that was it, though. I think it was like a preemptive strike ooh, against ooh. the Predators. 
Not good. Not yeah. good. Man. Makeup calls, of course, do happen, uh, even mm-hmm. though they're frustrating. But yeah, I, I think in this case, it was like making a call against them early in the game just to prove a point or because he could. Very weird. Very, very weird. Very weird. So basically, Batista started getting a little cocky with the betting situation. And so much word got out that someone leaked the situation to the FBI. This became more than just a betting thing. Mob mafia ties started getting into the mix because so much money was being moved. So an anonymous tip was given to the FBI that an NBA referee was in the pocket of people in the sports gambling underworld. There's a whole FBI investigation. One person who talks the most about it is this guy, Jim Scala. He wasn't necessarily the person most involved in the investigation, but he has been the most vocal about it. He's also an interesting character because he, even though he was doing the FBI investigation, he took Donaghy's side on some issues, and he even wrote the foreword to Donaghy's book about the situation. Hmm. So he's, again, someone that you don't know how much you can really trust about it. But Scala was not a sports gambling-focused person. He was a mafia person. He was specifically set to go into, I think, the Gambino crime family. They started bringing on this case because mafia crime families got into the mix, not because of its ties to the NBA. Wow. Batista eventually had to go to rehab. He had a drug addiction and someone else took over the business of doing this. It got too complex that he shut it down, but it was too little, too late because the FBI found out. And Batista, when he got out of rehab, was brought in for questioning. He was going to face 20 years in prison, but he ended up cooperating and then only ended up getting like 15 months. So he just spilled all the beans and named names and and he ended up being (sighs) pretty okay by comparison. I I would never want to make light of anyone's addiction struggles, but it is pretty striking that (laughs) basically Batista was like, hey, I'm going to go to rehab for this one addiction. Could somebody else take over my business that deals with other people's different addictions? Yep, 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 yep. So by June 15th of 2007, Donaghy was now sitting in the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, naming names, trying to make a statement. And then six days later, Jim Scala and a couple other people from the FBI traveled to the NBA offices in New York, and they sat down with Commissioner at the time, David Stern, and three other league executives, one of which was the Deputy Commissioner at the time, Adam Silver. And they started to tell them about the investigation that they were doing, and now Jim Scala says this is one of his biggest regrets because this story ended up getting leaked to someone named Murray Weiss who wrote for the New York Post. So Ah. like three to four weeks after this initial meeting where the FBI comes to the NBA and they say, look, we've got this case that we're working on. We would love your cooperation to figure it out. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is some unnamed informant gives an anonymous tip to a guy at the New York Post that this is happening. And what basically ends up happening in this article and then the entire NBA stance after this is that it's only Tim Donaghy. He's a rogue ref. This is just him. It's his fault. It's nobody else. They very much make him the scapegoat. Now, no one's ever confirmed this, but it is much highly believed that someone from the NBA leaked it to the Post because apparently Tim Donaghy was also going to work with the FBI and he was going to spill the beans on a lot of NBA referee stuff. Maybe saying that other refs were doing the same thing because Scott Foster, who is still a ref in the NBA, he was accused of betting on some games, whether it was him or other games. There was a lot of accusations that he was at least betting on Tim Donaghy's games because he got light of this. There was also the rumblings of if Tim Donaghy did have proof that the NBA did things like trying to get particular teams with bigger markets and larger audiences to win playoff games, if that came to light, that'd be very bad for the league. So it is highly, highly, widely believed that the NBA leaked this story and really went all in on making Donaghy the scapegoat 
to save the league's perception and just put all the blame on this one bad apple kind of guy. I mean, that's kind of always the move, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that ended up ruining Donaghy's entire plea deal situation with the FBI, because if all of this stuff comes out, like what, he can't really do anything at this point. He's just going to become discredited. His name was dragged through the mud. So that just kind of ruined all of that. He still only did get 15 months, just like Batista. And Tommy Martino got a year and a day for being the middleman facilitating all of this. But yeah, uh, that that was a, a big step in the situation becoming what it was, which was all fingers being pointed just at Donaghy for being rogue and solo. And from that perspective, you can understand how Donaghy would be like, yeah, I fucked up, but also I'm part of something bigger and don't make this just about me. Right. And that is what got swept out from under him because of the report and... Unfortunately, we're, we're never going to know like the full truth. And like we said earlier, it's even harder to know if all of these things that he said are true because he lies all the time. Right. So the FBI ended up just kind of having to drop the case because for them, there's more important things than are people ruining the integrity of basketball. Like they have real crime stuff to solve. Right. So once this leak happened, they still did some investigating. Like they looked at footage of Donaghy's games and all of that. They couldn't necessarily conclude that he did anything extremely egregious. They looked at a handful of his games that he refed and only one of them really brought up a bunch of red flags. But when you consider the types of things Donaghy was doing, it wasn't stuff that's going to be alarming where he's making incorrect calls. It's just picking and choosing, ruining the flow of the game, not being consistent, treating one team differently than the other team, stuff like that. It was the classic thing where like the FBI didn't prove his innocence, but they also couldn't prove his guilt, especially because once the report kind of got leaked and the NBA was taking their stance on it, they couldn't really do anything. So they moved on to more important matters from their perspective. Right. There's also some rumbling that the NBA really got involved at a higher level in the whistleblower podcast. They talk about things with like Congress getting involved and some really high level stuff. So it could have gotten a whole lot deeper than that. There was also a very sketchy thing where the NBA re-signed its TV deal one year before expiration during that three to four week period between the FBI telling them about the mm. situation and them leaking it. This could be coincidence, but it feels awfully timely to decide to re-up your TV deal with all of your TV providers right before a big news story drops. It seems fraudulent. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's like you are making this deal based on the value of your league and the value of your mm -hmm. league is diminished by a scandal taking place. Right. So you, you look at this stuff and it really sets the tone for how David Stern operated. He was businessman through and through. He played dirty. Obviously, this is all up for conjecture, and we don't know if it's 100%, blah, blah, blah. But if you go under the assumption that David Stern was screwing over the FBI, screwing over Tim Donaghy, screwing over the TV deals, it was, uh, it was some very timeless, shrewd business moves from David Stern. Morality aside, from a business perspective, the dude knew what the hell he was doing. Yep. He was very good at his job. Wow. So this ESPN article, which we'll put a link to on our episode page at horsehoops.com, they ended up doing a deep study on all of the games that Donaghy refs because the FBI only looked at like 17 games because Donaghy quote unquote, couldn't remember which games he bet on. So they didn't have the full file of all of the games, but they looked at a lot of the games, they got old referees involved, and they basically did a study, and the ultimate thing they arrived at was that Donaghy's track record of making calls that favored his bet was 23 wins, 
three losses and four that they couldn't find conclusive evidence about. And the random odds of that just happening, just by pure happenstance, are 6,155 to one. So Now uh, that is a bet I would take. <laughs> so I'll end this whole story on a quote from a gambler who was involved in the gambling ring before this ESPN story wanted to remain completely anonymous, and here's what he had to say about the situation. Quote, To the gambler's enduring surprise, Donaghy acknowledged that yes, he deliberately called more fouls against the side that he'd bet against. He told the gambler about other tactics as well. Quote, He said he liked to call an illegal defense call right away in the first minute. That way, the gambler said Donaghy could force the side he'd picked against to play a little less aggressively on defense. He'd said he'd pick on the big center or their most valuable player on each team, and he'd try to get him in foul trouble. The gambler added, quote, he also told me they were betting millions and he was an idiot not to ask for more. I mean, also true. <laughs> also, also true. So that is a very short recap of the 2007 betting scandal. There is so much about it. We'll put links all to it on the website, but it's a, it's a ridiculous story. It is unfortunate that we never got to know the real truth of did the NBA have some unseemly, unfair things where they were influencing referees to favor particular teams. But who's to say if David Stern doesn't do all of this shrewd, probably immoral business moves, is the NBA still in the place it is today? Or do people view it like professional wrestling? It's uh, it's very interesting. I would think that the league is in a better place now. There are still some problematic referees out there, like Scott Foster, who does have ties to this scandal. So it's it's a very interesting study. And uh, that actually happened. That was great. Well done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Horse Horses, hosted by Adam Mamawala and Mike Schubert. Our editor is Misha Stanton. The social media is run by Mike Schubert. The music is by Bettina Campomanes. The art is by Allison Wakeman. And the website is by Kelly Schubert. Thank you to our producer-level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Adam Hartwick, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Siobhan Ellsbury, Shooby Dooby Doo, Godzilla Got Busy, Steph Curry for three. Bang! He sells seashells, LeBron James, a very good actor, <laughs> Matt Barger, NBA legend Robert Sacri, No Jazz, No Pizza, Eileen Gazesh, Avatar Kiyoshi, Don't Go Chasing Taco Falls, Anna Borjali, Mitch Chrysler. Bang! Bang! Brown Men Can Jump, Jimmy Butler for two, and long-suffering Timberwolves fan. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Horse Hoops and on Twitter at Horse underscore Hoops because Horse Hoops bet on their own games and you just can't do that. You really can't. Go to our website, horsehoops.com, for more information about Tim Donaghy's betting scandal and, of course, links to Patrick Chewing and Dikembe Mutombo in a Geico commercial saying, Nothing my house. <laughs> It's pretty good. I do love that he sounds exactly like the Cookie Monster as 100%. Well. If you want some sweet bonus content, someone suggested that we should do a recap of the Space Jam 2 trailer, which could be a really good overtime that we would make in the future. But if you want to see five on fives, other videos and stuff like that, you want to get a jersey, you want to get a sticker, more, all of that lives at patreon.com slash horse hoops. And thanks to Multitude for having us as a part of the collective. If you are podcasting and you are in an underrepresented position in the podcasting world, Multitude does free consulting so you can head on over to multitude.productions and get some advice from our production team they can help you make a better show some good stuff and also uh, if you want to have access to the live show that we recorded if you missed it where can people do that we are going to have that up on the merch store i will let you all know when it is live i'll work with the same merch company that we do for all our other stuff and you can get a replay copy of the video it was pretty great it was very good i'm very biased but it was fantastic so we'll close out this episode as we always do we'll put our hands in the middle and say something on the count of three i feel like we should quote that Michael Jordan I'm gonna need a good meal uh, and and put some pizzazz on it since he put no pizzazz on his reading <laughs> that sounds good so we're gonna go with uh, I'm gonna need a good meal tonight mm-hmm. on the count of three all right one two three I'm, I'm gonna, gonna need, need a good, a good meal, meal tonight, tonight. <laughs>
Look at you. Have you been taking an acting intensive? I sure have. <laughs> wow. Sounds like it. 